And speaking of tough questions this morning, uh, we have the opportunity together today to try and answer one of the toughest as we continue to work our way uh, this week through the Gospel of Mark in our Rooted Sermon series. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, and chapter 6, verses 45 to 51. These are two passages with striking similarities that go beyond even just the superficial fact that they're both accounts of Jesus calming storms for his disciples. And the tough question that is raised in both these texts today and then answered in them is right there in your sermon title in the bulletin. Where is God in this storm? And I want to acknowledge right from the outset that there is uh, no reason to take either of these accounts as anything less than literal, factual events that occurred 2,000 years ago involving the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet, what I want to kind of direct us in, in our interpretation this morning towards is that I think if we stop at merely a literal uh, factual reading of the text, I think we will miss so much of what God has for us in this, these beautiful passages. If our only takeaway from this morning is that Jesus has the power to literally walk on water, to calm physical storms, then I think we will have missed the point. I think God wants to communicate something to us here in these passages, not only about his power and his presence in some past physical storms in this world, but about his power and presence in the present personal storms in our lives. You got that? So let me say that again. These two passages are not just about Jesus' intervention in some past physical storms in this world, but his present personal intervention in the storms in our lives. And what we're going to discover this morning is six truths that arise out of both of these passages in Mark 4 and Mark 6 that God wants to keep fresh in our minds, that he wants to, to drive home and bury within our hearts that are going to help us process and navigate the storms of our lives. Six biblical truths for weathering the storms of life. That's the subtitle. So would you stand with me as you're able uh, for the reading of God's word? I'll read both these passages for us. If you want to follow along in your Bibles or on the screens in front of you. First is Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took him, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 51. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. 
And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come here this morning in very different places in our lives and our hearts. Some of us really need to hear from you this morning. I know that there are some here this morning who feel like they're in the middle of a big storm in their life right now, being tossed about, and they need to hear from you. So, Father, I pray that you would take my broken, fallible human words and work through them. You would make little of me and my words and reflections here and much of Jesus. God, would you come now and inspire, speak to minds and hearts, open eyes and ears to see and hear you this morning. For our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Biblical truth number one for weathering life storms is the recognition that Jesus ordains our storms. Would you look with me first at Mark 4.35? Whose idea was it to get in the boat and cross the lake? Jesus. The point is made even stronger in chapter 6. Verses, verse 45 says, immediately he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. And why were his disciples having such a hard time making it across in verse 48? It's because the wind was against him. Now we need to keep in mind here that part of the point of this story is that Jesus has authority over the storm. Chapter 4, verse 41, even the wind and the seas obey him. And so... We know right off the bat here, Jesus was not passively subject to the whims of Mother Earth. He was and is at every point sovereign over every facet of his created order. According to Scripture, listen to the way that Scripture attests to God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over our plans. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is sovereign over the rulers of this world. Proverb 21.1, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over our disabilities. Exodus 4.11, then the Lord said to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's sovereign over evil. Isaiah 45.7, 
I form the light and create the darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God's sovereign over life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. God's sovereign over our salvation. Romans 9, 15 and 16, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is sovereign over everything. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but, it is, but its every decision is from the Lord. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And that means that God is sovereign over natural phenomena as well. As the disciples let us know, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Our atheist friends have one thing right about the God they reject. He really is sovereign. They are right to question God's goodness when the storms in their lives come because if God had no control or authority over life's circumstances, then it would be a moot point. But God does have control, and he is sovereign. And yet, you can't hate a God who doesn't exist. And so if you're here this morning, and you would be honest enough to admit that you are mad at God, can I just try and comfort you this morning in three ways? Number one, join the club. Because everyone in this room has been there at some point in our lives. And if we haven't, Jesus has. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number two, let me assure you this morning that God is big enough to handle your questions, your doubts, the things you wrote on your cards there. He's even big enough to handle your anger. Read the prophets. Read the book of Lamentations. Read a third of the Psalms that are songs of lament. God can take it. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to dress it up this morning. You can get real with God, and this church is a safe place to do that. And you might as well, because he's got the authority to read your your mind and your heart anyway. He already knows. You're not going to fool him. And number three, if you're upset with God this morning, take comfort the fact that you are by definition not an apostate atheist because you can't be mad at God if he doesn't exist. Do you remember what the name Israel meant in the Old Testament? Go back and read Genesis 32. Israel means God wrestler. God names his people not after our faithfulness to trust him perfectly and never question him or doubt him, but rather God names us after our faithfulness to keep wrestling and not give up even when we do question and even when we do doubt. The struggle, as they say, is real. And God of all people knows it because he ordains it. He allows our trials in this life. But take heart this morning, Christian, because the fact that God allows the storm, that he is actually sovereign over the storm in your life, means that he also has the power to make good on his promise 
that if you are one of his beloved children, he is working all things together for your good this morning. Romans 8, 28. The second truth that we lean on through life's storms is that God provides us with fellow sufferers to go through the storms of life with us. Now, this is a minor point in the text, and so I'm, I'm not going to major on, on it here, but look back with me quickly at verses 436b and chapter 6, verse 45b. We read that other boats were with them, with the disciples and Jesus as they're sailing in chapter 4. And then in chapter 6, that Jesus dismissed the crowd, and as he's sending the disciples ahead of him to Bethsaida, presumably at least some of the crowd in attendance had also come from Bethsaida. They've got to sail back home alongside the disciples. And so not only is Jesus with us through life's storms, but he wants us to look around and realize that we're not the only boat in this caravan that's being tossed about. God has designed us for relationship, not just with him, but with one another as well. And there are some burdens that you may go through in life, some burdens that are too heavy for you to carry alone. God intentionally ordains and designs them that way. You need friends to come alongside you. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one. You need Jesus by your side to pick you up when you go through life storms. You cannot do it alone. And yet, a threefold cord is even stronger. You, Jesus, and a friend, your relationships, your family. Friends, there is real power in community. And if you need to begin praying this morning about which life group God would have you sign up for in the fall, here in a couple weeks when we relaunch life groups on August 11th, please do that. That's what they're there for, community. Maybe you need a community that is specifically geared towards your particular storm in your life. My wife has gotten connected with a group of women who all struggle with infertility. What is your storm? Whether it's divorce care for those going through a divorce, grief share for those who have lost a loved one, AA for alcoholism, first light for sex, sex addiction, the support group that meets here on Monday nights for folks battling mental illness, whatever your storm, I promise you are not alone. There are other boats in that caravan fellow travelers and sufferers. And you don't have to go it alone. You were never meant to go it alone. There's power in community, but you have to look around. You have to reach out. And while we are not a church big enough yet to support our own ministries for every single one of those storms, we are well connected, and I would love to help resource you. Please come talk to me. Totally confidential, might change your life. Biblical truth, biblical truth number three is that Jesus lets us struggle. He lets us struggle. Not only does he allow the storm, he allows us to continue to battle it, to fight and to wrestle, to struggle. Look back with me at chapter four, verse 38. What is Jesus doing 
while the storm is raging. He's asleep in the stern, on the cushion. Don't you love the on the cushion detail that Mark adds here? I love that. Just to emphasize how at peace Jesus is, we picture him all cozied up, nestled delicately on his little cushion. Meanwhile, up on the deck, the disciples are being thrown overboard and sliding across the deck, knocked off their feet, drenched. They're screaming orders at one another, frantically trying to bail water off the side because the boat's about to go down. And then the camera cuts back to Jesus, nestled quietly, soft music playing gently in the background. Look at, look at chapter 6. Mark goes out of his way again in chapter 6 to inform us that as Jesus is walking out towards them on the water, he meant to pass them by. Why? Verse 48. Why is Jesus just going to keep walking right by them on top of the water? Hey, guys. Bye, guys. Is he that cold-hearted? Is Jesus that uncaring about our struggles, our suffering? The disciples themselves question him. They say, Jesus, don't you care that we're out here perishing? Why does Jesus let us struggle and suffer? I'll offer you two reasons biblically. Number one, our suffering grows us. Friends, if God's aim in this life is our comfort, then he is doing a pretty terrible job. If God's ultimate goal is to keep you comfortable and happy at every turn in your life, he is a miserable failure. Whose life here does that describe? Completely happy and pain-free. Please raise your hand. I would love to take some tips. And none of us even has to worry where our next meal comes from at West Hills. None of us is worrying about whether the rebel militia is going to come through our village and murder us in our sleep. We have got it good here relative to the rest of the world. And God still hasn't managed to save us from all of our pain and our suffering. But if his aim is our sanctification, our growth in Christ-likeness, being conformed to the image of Jesus more and more every day, then our suffering gets reframed not as an oversight or a failure on God's part, but as the very instrument, the very tool that he uses to accomplish his good pleasure and his purpose and his work in our lives. Because every believer who has been through anything close to real hardship knows that God can and he will use those trials in unique, powerful, transformative ways to grow you to mature you, to test you, and purify and refine and ultimately strengthen your faith. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of what? Affliction. 1 Peter 1.6 and 7, You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, 
that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses our suffering, not just to test, but to refine and to purify, to burn away the dross and the imperfections of our faith and make us more like Jesus, more perfect in our faith. And that brings God more glory and praise and honor, which is why we're here in the first place. That's reason number one. And the second reason related that God allows us to suffer is that it makes us more fully dependent on him. In the long term, our suffering will strengthen and grow us, number one. And in the short term, number two, God uses our suffering to humble us, to break us, to force us to our knees where the only place we have left to look is up. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I get to heaven, I want to ask Jesus, how long did the disciples freak out, frantically try and bail water and scream at each other before they finally gave up and came downstairs and turned to you? in desperation. Friends, maybe you've been trying to bail water on your own for too long now. It's time to go down in the stern and invite Jesus to help. He's already on board. He never left. He's not refusing to help. He might just be waiting for you to ask to turn to him in your desperation, in your weakness, to turn to him for his strength. But I also want to be sensitive this morning that some of you may have already asked. I mean, maybe you, you have truly asked. Maybe you've, you've begged him. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, thanks for the tip, Pastor, but I've been trying to shake Jesus awake for years now. and He's still asleep. He still hasn't calmed my storm. And I want to say with as much sensitivity as I can this morning, maybe he won't. Notice that nowhere in either of these stories, nowhere in anywhere in Scripture, does God promise to calm our every storm. God's goodness does not bind him to calm our every storm. God may still allow our storms to rage still allow our thorns in the flesh to raise second uh, rage to, to remain second corinthians 12 so as to grow us to humble us in reliance on him to prove his his strength is made perfect in our weakness and i know that doesn't make whatever it is that you are sitting there dealing with struggling, suffering with right now, I know that that does not make that any easier. It doesn't make it easy. I, I, I know that we have some people at West Hills going through some immense suffering right now. I see your prayer requests. 
I promise, as, as your pastor, I feel the weight of them. I cry with you, even as I celebrate with you when you go through the good times in life. But more importantly, God sees them. God knows them. God knows your, your requests. He hears them. He's not asleep. It's not easy, but brothers and sisters, it's worth it. It is worth it. God promises that he will not waste our suffering. He does not waste our tears. As we sang this morning, Psalm 56, 8, God, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. What a beautiful promise. God doesn't waste our tears. We can trust that he's still good, even through our suffering. Because, number four, and this is where things get really good, not only is Jesus sovereign over our suffering, and not only does he promise to use it for our good, but truth number four is that Jesus is with you, and that he cares for you, and so you can cry out to him. What's the answer to today's sermon title? Where is God in the storm? Mark 4.36, where was Jesus? He's with them in the boat all along. Mark 6.51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. The disciples question him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus responds and proves his concern for them by rebuking the wind and stilling the storm. Of course he cares about them. He's just waiting for them to cry out to him, to realize they couldn't do it on their own and to turn to him in faith. And rather than give you a whole lot of extra commentary, my words on this point, number four, I just want to take you straight to the word and the promises of God for you himself as reminders and encouragement to fill up your hearts this morning. First of all, God is with you. He's with you, he cares for you, and he hears your cries. Number one, he's with you. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua 1.9, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Psalm 139, 7 to 10, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence if I ascend to heaven? You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall uphold me. John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus promised, I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Matthew 28, 20, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Romans 8, I'm sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Mm. These are beautiful promises. God cares for you. He's with you, and he cares for you. He's not just there and empathizing, sympathizing. Yeah, it's really bad down here. He cares. Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've continued my faithfulness to you. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Isaiah 43.4, you're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Isaiah 46.4, even to your old age, I am he, and to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made you, I will bear you. I will carry and I will save. Lamentations 3, 22, 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your Father, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Your heavenly Father knows what you need. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And lastly, God wants you to cry out to him. He sees you, he hears you, he's with you, he cares for you, and he wants you to continue to to cry out, to, to turn to him in your desperation. Psalm 18, 6, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Your prayers reach his ears. He's not deaf. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Psalm 57, I cry out to God most high, who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 77, 1, I cry out to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. He will hear me. James 4, 2, you don't have because you don't ask. James 4, 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And finally, Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't think that's a promise about the physical storms of our life. He doesn't promise to calm the physical storms. He promises something better. Because friends, if you still have doubts about God's unfailing presence, his unconditional care for you, or his irrevocable offer of salvation to you, you need look no further than Jesus in the person of Jesus, God's presence, his love, and his salvation reach their climax. Do you want proof that God is present? Jesus is the word made flesh to dwell amongst us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. You want proof that God sees you and that he cares for you? It's in Jesus that God promises to us and fulfills his promise that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
God proves his love for us in this, Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you need evidence that God is ready and willing and able to save you if you will but cry out to him? Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He says in Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, I will eat with him, and he with me. Friends, hear the good news this morning. The best news, the gospel, that while you were caught in the worst storm of your entire life, your sin, that separated you eternally from your maker and the lover of your soul, God did not stay far off. He did not fail to take notice, to care for you. Your cries did not fall on deaf ears. But God in his great love and his mercy entered into your storm in the person of Jesus, and he calmed it. Jesus calmed the storm of God's righteous wrath against your sin and rebellion. He put the enmity between you and God to death in his body on the cross and removed the wall of separation that your sins had built between you and a perfect God. And the only thing that you have left to do now, the only thing that you can do now to be made right with God and to enjoy him forever is to cry out to him in faith. Confess and repent of your sins and believe. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because number five, Jesus has the power to calm storms. Mark 4:39, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "Be still, peace." And the wind ceased, and there was a great storm. Mark 6.51, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. But friends, compared to our sin and the eternal weight of the hell that we deserve, calming a storm for Jesus, is, it's like a party trick. Whatever storm you're facing this morning, and I know Those weekly prayer requests that we get as a church, they represent just a fraction of the storms in our congregation at West Hills, what you're going through. But without presuming to know all of your struggles, whether it's your own sin, whether it's someone else's, whether it's sickness, grief, whatever it is that you're facing, can I just tell you with confidence this morning, I don't know what your storm is, but I know that Jesus is bigger. I know that he is more powerful. He has the power and the authority to calm your storm. And he might just desire to do it, surrender to him in faith this morning. But even if he doesn't, even if his will is to continue to use that storm in your life to grow you by making you more dependent on his strength instead. You can still trust in his eternal promise that one day 
He is coming back and he will wipe away every tear from your eye. One day, death and sickness and pain will be no more because he will come and he will make all things new. And there are some storms that we go through in this life, like the murder of a 16-year-old best friend of Elijah in our youth group this past week, like the death of Aaron's 36-year-old cousin, father of four, the week before, to cancer. There are some storms that we go through in this life, sometimes the best response, the only response is simply, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Come take this mess that we've made of this world and make it new. And he will, friends, he will. Hold on. Cling to his promise. He will. And even as we await that final, ultimate redemption of all things, even as we wait, we press on, Because number six, finally, Jesus moves us from fear to faith. He says, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid. And we need to understand this morning, it's okay to be afraid when you go through the storms of life. When you're in the middle of the storm, notice the verb tense that Jesus uses in chapter four, verse 40. He says, why are you afraid? Why are you still afraid? He doesn't ask them, why were you afraid? Because I think Jesus understands the storms are scary. That there's going to be that freak out, panic, anxiety. There's going to be that time for us. But once we realize and remember he's still on the boat, once we cry out to him and we go down, We go to him and and, and we realize he's been there all along and that he cares and that he says to us, take heart, it is I. You don't have to be afraid. I've got you. I hold you in my right hand. I've got you. And his perfect love begins to cast out fear as he moves us from fear to faith, from terror to tranquility, from panic to peace from help to hope. And I want to close with one of my favorite promises in the entire Bible. For those of you who may still be in the midst of the storm of your life, it's a promise you can cling to this morning. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, supplication with thanksgiving let your hearts your requests be made known to God and what does God promise us does he promise to grant your request does he even promise to answer your request some of you have been begging God in prayer for something for years now you feel like he's not even answering you what does he promise something even better than an answer even better than a yes to your will and your desire. God promises you peace. My peace, he says, the peace of God, perfect peace, which surpasses understanding. 
He says, I know that you think what you need most is an answer, is to understand why I'm letting you continue to go through this storm. You actually need something even more, even better. Just understanding what I'm up to here isn't enough. You need peace. That surpasses understanding. That will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Amen, and let it be so in our hearts this morning. Let's pray.